Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we pray and plead that you would grant us your Holy Spirit now to understand your word. Father, we are all broken in sin, and this is where we find our origin story for such a condition. Lord, would we face both the bad news of who we are and the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected, who gives grace to any and all that come to him here this morning. Do a good work now, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You can be seated. There are a number of things, if you think about it, that parents probably shouldn't tell their kids. And I spent a little bit of time on Mr. Googly this week. What are some things that parents shouldn't tell kids? And I didn't spend too long on that rabbit hole because it got very dark very quickly. But still, there are some things that we shouldn't say. And for me, when I looked at some of those lists, there are a couple of things that thankfully, I don't think I've ever said to my kids. But then a couple of other things that I probably have. But here's one of those things that I think, and I'm sure I'll hear about it if I'm wrong, that I think I've never told my kids, and that's probably a good thing. When you have a kid that does something wrong, like really, really stupid, a parent may be tempted to say, what's wrong with you? 
What's wrong with you? Have you ever felt that or said that to another person? Maybe you're a parent and you've said that to a child or felt it, or maybe a child to a parent, or maybe an adult child to a parent, maybe to a friend, maybe when you're looking at a headline of one kind or another and you're reading about a story and thinking, what is wrong with this person? You probably know if you're on the receiving end of a what is wrong with you type comment, it hurts. It stings. In part because when we're told what's wrong with you, we wonder, is that right? Is there some truth in this? Am I uniquely broken one way or another? What's wrong with you? But... In our honest moments, haven't we all spent time, whether figuratively or literally, in front of the mirror asking the question, what's wrong with me? Is something broken? Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I say the things that I say? Why do I think the things that I think? Why do I feel the things that I feel? What's wrong with me? I don't get it. When I do some mean stuff that I know is mean, and it's going to hurt other people. It's unfair. And when I do stupid stuff, and I know that there's going to be consequences, not only consequences negatively for other people, but consequences for me as well, but I do it anyway. What's wrong with me? And we can expand the question. Have you ever wondered what's wrong with us? What's wrong with us as human beings? And truth be told, every religion, every philosophy, every system around the world and throughout the ages of thought, trying to piece together a view of life, the universe, and everything, wrestles with this question one way or another. What's wrong with us? And here this morning, from our story at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, this is the Bible's shot. This is the Bible's answer. This, this is what's wrong with us. Sin. We are corrupted in our very natures. And it might be scary or dire or dour to think about such things. But here are my cards on the table. This passage and this reality, this truth about our own sin, this is one of the main reasons that I'm a Christian. That the Christian story resonates with me. I read Genesis 3, and from my perspective, if the shoe fits, I've got to wear it. But what we have here this morning is a gracious invitation to be courageous, to look in the mirror and ask, might this be true of us? And yes, surely sin is bad news, but it's actually good to learn bad news about ourselves as opposed to say, never, I got a physical a couple weeks ago. It's good to get physicals, even when there is bad news. 
good to know bad news. But it's not just all bad news either when it comes to the hope that God gives us in the gospel. So two parts from here when we talk about the fall of humanity. We'll talk fall, and then we'll talk fracture. Fall and fracture, talking some fall. So we've gone from not good to just plain bad. Last week was not good. This week is just plain bad. Our passage for last week began, It is not good that man should be alone, God said. Therefore, I will make a helper fit for him. So we have the birth of human community in the story from last week. But then this week is that dun-dun-dun moment when things go downhill fast. This is Christianity's paradise lost story. The story of how sin and death and evil have come into the world and how it affects all of us. And granted, there are deep mysteries here for sure. Not everything is explained. For example, where did that serpent come from? The very beginning of the passage. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Where did that serpent come from? I thought, every, I thought God made everything good. We don't have an explanation for that. And also, there's some mystery related to the fact, why did God let this happen in the first place? If you've never checked out our podcast, Debriefing Through the Sermon, the Post-Sunday Blues, Preaching Post-Mortem, I'm going to be talking with my wife Emily about that question in a little more detail this coming week. But we don't have answers to all of those things. And I wouldn't blame you if you're coming here this morning or watching online from a skeptical perspective where you're thinking, I'm not quite sure about all of this stuff. And Jim, the story that you just read, that sounds like fairy tale. That can't be real. That can't be true. I would ask you to look again, where at least from my perspective, when I look at the characters, Adam and Eve, our first parents in the story, for all of the strangeness and ancientness of this passage, these two characters, they are so recognizably human and contemporary. Different from how I read a lot of other ancient literature. So whether the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid or Sophocles or Xenophon, over and over again, you have human characters in those stories and those histories, but they're kind of cardboard cutouts. They're not flesh and blood like you and me. But Adam and Eve here in the story... They are all too recognizably flesh and blood to us. And think about this as well. 2022, some New Year's resolutions of various kinds. One of my reading projects for this year, and it's probably going to take me more than this year, is that there is an early 1800s Italian writer and thinker named Giacomo Leopardi, and he wrote this big book called The Zibaldone. And for a lot of years, he was kind of a hermit. He just wrote all day long about a lot of different stuff. And this guy was deeply skeptical, and he's not super well-known. He's a little bit like the band behind the band, where you have famous bands, but then also some not-so-famous bands that gave ideas to the famous bands. And those famous bands will say, you may not have heard of this other group, but this band was really influential on me. That's who Leopardi was as a thinker in Europe over the past couple of centuries. Deeply skeptical about Christianity. He was not a Christian. He did not identify that way. In a heavily Christian time and country... But he said, there's one part of the Christian story that I think is true, that I think is right, that I still believe in. And it's this one, the fall of humanity. This part is true. He put it this way. I am convinced of man's corruption 
and his fall from a primitive state of happiness, just as Christianity maintains the primary cause was sin. So here we are. And we do have the serpent who actually, and maybe you're a little bit familiar with the story, you've heard it before, perhaps, identified with the serpent as the devil or Satan. Actually not referred in that way here in this story, but even for the rest of the Bible, reflecting back upon this passage in a mysterious way, it is the devil... It is Satan that inhabits the certain serpent here. So in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the scriptures, there's a reference. And that great dragon, the satanic figure, was thrown down. That ancient serpent, call back to Genesis, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And you might be back thinking again, oh, so we're back in the fairy tale realm where there's this devil out there. We don't believe in that as modern Western people. Well, I'd come back and tell you that that is a minority opinion in the history of the world. Where on the other hand, around the world and throughout the ages, there is a pervasive recognition of a universal and personified evil that is bigger than any of us. There's so much evil in the world. It's not just you and you and you and you and you and me. But there is a larger evil out there that's out to get us. Everything from Loki to Legba. Loki, Norse mythology, the god of mischief and evil, who looks especially handsome and dashing when he's played by Tom Hiddleston. Legba, the Yoruba religion from Africa, also a devil figure because people get that there is big evil out there. And you want to know who else believed in a personified devil? Jesus did. Jesus took the devil very seriously. And if we confess, as the church does, that Jesus is God, we should probably take his word for it as well. I mentioned last week a pastor on the West Coast, John Mark Comer, I read a book of his called Live No Lies, when in part, and he's talking to skeptical secular people, we need to take the devil seriously. And this is what he wrote here. For Jesus, there is an invisible but real intelligence at war with God and all that is good, beautiful, and true. The devil's end goal is to drive our souls into society and ruin, to decimate love. And it's true, we don't see the devil all over the place in scriptures, but the devil picks his spots really well. First parents on the scene, here's the devil, Eve and Adam. When the second Adam comes, and Eric Mitchell in a couple of weeks is going to mention more about this connection that the Apostle Paul makes between Adam and between Jesus, the second Adam the devil's back on the scene, who attacks Jesus both at the beginning of his ministry in the desert and then at the end of his ministry on the cross, where Satan enters Judas. And Jesus says, and now is your hour and the power of darkness. Scripture says, and it's good news to hear true bad things, that this devil is real. And the devil's game is lies. The devil's game is lies. John Mark Comer, one more time. The devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, which are normalized in a sinful society. His method is lies. His primary stratagem, his go-to signature move, is deception. And so we have it in the story here. Let's look at the fall of humanity. Second half of verse 1. The devil comes here, the serpent, obliquely giving half-truths. He said to the woman, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Truth be told, if you go back and look at Genesis 2, God did not say you can't eat of any tree in the garden, just that one. But there's a twisting around beginning here and a softening on the part of humanity. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That little detail amplifying the prohibition, God Maybe it was implied, but didn't explicitly say, don't even touch that. But the woman says, yeah, God says, don't even touch that. And a more direct attack next time around, this round from the serpent, more direct, but still have truths. But the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you will not surely die. And that's, as we see the story unfold, kind of a yes, but kind of a no. It's nuanced. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. That's the truth, but not the whole truth. And you will be like God. The truth, but not the whole truth. Knowing good and evil. And verse 6 is where you have the fall. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And in this act, the wheels of history and the gears of humanity decisively turn. And you can picture the decline here. If this was, say, an animated, old-school, hand-drawn Disney film, maybe you can see the eyes of the woman getting wider and wider and wider looking at this fruit. So when the woman saw a tree, good for food, open, delight to the eyes, wide, desired to make one wise, more open. Thus has sin entered the world. And I wonder if the Apostle James, writing in the New Testament, talking about how sin takes hold of our lives, maybe he had this story in mind when he wrote in his first chapter, but each person, when he is Lord... When, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we look in the mirror, what is wrong with us? Well, it's sin. And scholars and commentators have looked at this passage in Genesis 3, asking what more specifically is going on here? And it looks like what we have is an anxiety or an insecurity for more. Pat Riley, an NBA basketball coach and executive, with the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980s, they won a lot of championships, but then went on a decline. He's famous for coining the phrase, the disease of more. When you had a team functioning as a team, but then you get a little bit of success, and it's not about the team anymore, but it's about all of the individuals getting theirs, getting their stats, getting their recognition, getting their money. That's how it is with human beings. We are insecure for more. And we'll think, God's not going to give me what I need. Maybe God's holding me back. Maybe God is not enough for me. Maybe I should turn and twist what God has said one way or another. And so what you have in Adam and Eve here is human aspiration to autonomy. I'm going to be my own standard. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. In Genesis 1 and 2, it was God over and over again. 
God made things and saw that it was good. This was good. This was good. This was good. No coincidence in how writerly this story is, the details given in verse 6, that it's the woman now seeing that this fruit is good. As if we're making our own decisions now, being our own standards. I'm just going to go and get what I need for myself when I want it and how I want it. Theologians have called this total depravity for human beings. That doesn't mean that we are absolutely and always as bad as we can possibly be, but every aspect of who we are, we're corrupted. There are flies in all of our ointments all the way down. How does that work out for us? And it's our writers, I think, that so clearly, whether or not they come from Christian perspectives that have identified Yes, there is something fundamentally flawed about us. David, in giving the call to confession, G.K. Chesterton was a Christian writer. The only empirically demonstrable aspect of Christianity, so to speak, is sin, because we are all there. If you were with us in the early days of Liberty Collingswood, you heard me quote a lot from Saul Bellow's novel, Henderson the Rain King, making a comeback, where Henderson says this. There comes a day... There always comes a day of tears and madness. There was a disturbance in my heart, a voice that spoke there and said, I want, I want, I want, I want. It happened every afternoon. And when I tried to suppress it, it got even stronger. It only said one thing, I want, I want, I want. And I would ask, what do you want? But this was all it would ever tell me. It never said a thing except, I want, I want, I want. That's the insecurity, the anxiety for more. Another author recently deceased, W.G. Siebold, in his novel Austerlitz, talks about humanity like this. Unlike birds who keep building the same nest over thousands of years, we tend to forge ahead with our projects far beyond any reasonable bounds. As human beings, we don't live within our limits. Give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more, and I'm going to take it. And from that desire to keep pressing ahead, we make too much of ourselves, exceed our limits, and make ourselves to be bigger than we are. That's where the jealousy, that's where the selfishness comes in, the deceitfulness. That's where the arrogance comes in. And isn't it possible, recently, that you have felt those aspects within your own heart and life, and those lies, I deserve more, cause harm for you and for other people. Those lies cause harm. We can think to ourselves, I'm entitled. On my own terms, I'm going to get it. More fun, more recognition, more love. I'm going to be the center of the universe all around me right now. And when we take those steps, when desire conceives and gives birth to sin, that's everything from when one little kid grabs a toy from another kid. That's sin. When a spouse begins to trip down the slippery slope into having an affair step by step by step. When you're in a work environment and you have an opportunity, maybe you don't have to say anything. It's just going in that direction to take credit for something that's really not yours, but you just let it go in that direction all the way to people groups, oppressing other people groups, taking from them, and racism, and oppression, and all of these things. We make ourselves to be bigger than we are. But here's a sad paradox. When we puff ourselves up, and puff ourselves up, and puff ourselves up, 
we self-diminish at the same time. Trying to make ourselves so big, we become small. I see that in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Under this umbrella of self-diminishment, we can put here as it spins out in our world, things like self-hatred and addictive behaviors and deep hopelessness. And so at least for me, as has been confessed by the church throughout the ages, this is our fall. This is our corruption. And I look at Genesis 3 and say, busted. Guilty is charged. This is who we are. This is what is wrong with us. Saul Bellow, one more time. A man is the prince of organisms, talking about men and women, humanity. He is the master of adaptations. He is the artist of suggestions. He is himself the principal work of art in the body, working in the flesh. What a miracle, what triumph. Also, what a disaster. What tears are to be shed. We talk here at Liberty Collingswood of different narrative arcs, horizons that come to us from the scriptures. The creation horizon, when God made all things, including us, good. That's as if Be that's Bello saying here, human beings, what a miracle, what a triumph. But then the fallen perspective from Genesis 3, our story, what a disaster. And you can read the whole opening chapters of Genesis beginning here through chapter 11. And this is where we'll end at the beginning of the spring, Genesis chapter 11, a history of how things fall apart and get worse. A chronicle of our original decline. So fall, and then there's also fracture here. Beginning in verse 8, this whole paragraph, and moving down from there, an immediate tragedy. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. I love that image. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This image, God walking in the cool of the day, and more clear in the original language, this God was walking. It's not just a one-time deal, but it's an iterative or habitual. God would take walks in the garden with humanity. And that image of walking... Walking with God is an image of how we as human beings can be close with God, like you're taking a walk. In Genesis chapter 5, just a couple chapters from here, we see that Enoch walked with God. As in, he was really close with God, and then he was no more. But all of that is broken now. And there are multiple layers of alienation that come down to us from this fall. And we can take them apart, theologians including the author of one of our favorite books, Tim Keller, said that there are multiple layers of alienation from the fall at the deepest level. Man, humanity, and God, we are now alienated from one another. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What was originally a close relationship between humanity and God, now stressed, and fatally so, unless God does something about it. But then there's also alienation between people. I'm a sports podcast listener. Love, you know, checking in on my depressing Philadelphia sports teams. We can talk about the self-hatred of Philadelphia sports another time. But I'm in for the duration. 
One of the phrases that I hear on sports podcasts for players that we don't like, we say they have big loser energy. Jalen Rager, sorry. Maybe I shouldn't call it specific Eagles players in a sermon, but I forget that I said that. But, but there may be some Philadelphia players that, in my opinion, have big loser energy. I see big loser energy in Adam and what he says here. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. That's big loser energy, dude, dude. In the previous chapter, he exploded into poetry when the woman was created. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is awesome. Now total blame shifting. And it gets worse from here, but that's alienation between people. They even see alienation within oneself in the next verse with the woman. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eric is going to talk next week or a couple weeks from now after the network Sunday. Also about how we're alienated from nature. Those are the four levels or layers of alienation. But this is what's wrong with us. And the challenging invitation to us all this morning is for us to own our bad news. Are you willing to do that? To own the bad news about who you are and about who I am. And let me tell you, it's easier to go in one or two directions. To say, none of it's my fault. Some of you, I watched it in syndication. Maybe a couple of you caught it first run. Fonzie from Happy Days. Do you remember how... He could never actually say he was wrong, and he'd go, I was, and he would literally get caught on that word. Fonz, you messed up. He's like, yeah, I was, say that none of it's our fault, but it's also easier in a way to say, okay, fine, it's all my fault. Put it all on me. The Bible doesn't say that either. Yes, all of us are totally depraved. But there is fault all around us as well. There are lots of contributing factors. A third way walk in worldview as we follow Jesus is that we're able to locate different aspects of what's wrong across the board. But you better believe that includes us. Whether past or present. Where have you acted out on the insecurity for more? Where have you acted out on thinking that God doesn't have enough for me? Where have you acted out on turning or twisting, going sideways with God's word and what he has said? And how is that working out for us? That's why we have confession every week at church. To confess that bad news about ourselves. But at the same time, as we receive bad news, we also receive good news of Jesus Christ. That's what gives us the courage at the end of the day to own the bad news about ourselves because Jesus is crucified and resurrected. In the garden, Adam and Eve fell. But then fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' ministry where Jesus went out into the wilderness, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights so that he was full of the Holy Spirit, tempted again by Satan. And this Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, did not fall. Satan came to Jesus said, you see that stone? Turn it into bread. Jesus doesn't allow the word of God to get twisted, but comes back with it. It says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Oh yeah? If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. 
But Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Okay, well, let's test out the power of this God. Throw yourself off this rock. Jesus says, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. This Jesus did not fall all the way to and through the cross where he died to pay the penalty for this debt for sin that we incurred, in which we participate, out of which we act over and over and over again. Like we say on Sunday morning sometimes, Jesus paid it all. And as we receive this Christ, we are liberty. We are free people. As we take this Jesus in by faith, he has conquered your sin on the cross, paid for it. He's conquered the strong man, the devil, bound him up forever. He's conquered even death itself. And the good news of Jesus is that you don't have to cover yourself. Let God cover you instead. Let God do the covering. You can't do it. That's his job. And as you receive the grace of Jesus, the layers, the levels of alienation, they are repealed. They're rolled back now all the way into a new heavens and a new earth. And our mission as we live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood, surrounding boroughs, wherever God has put you, that is laying back and rolling back as agents of alienation reversal in our fallen world because the kingdom of God has erupted in the person and work and ongoing ministry of Jesus of Nazareth because he's risen. And I would challenge you here, and this is where we'll end, fight that insecurity for more. When you have those desirous pangs of, I'm not getting what I deserve and need. I'm going to act out. I'm going to turn God's word. I'm going to say, God doesn't have enough for me. I'm going to throw my weight around. I'm going to wonder, did God actually say, cry out for Jesus? Cry out for Jesus. I'll leave you with this passage from Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Instead of insecurity for more and corruption, what if we would take Jesus at his word here? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In your moments of the disease of more, cry out to this God. Let it be a discipline of faith, even as you're still exploring. Cry out to this God for help. Seek first his kingdom. 
and in the power of the Holy Spirit be able to say, I have enough. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. Thank you.